0: Good morning. good morning, praise God that so many have braved the rain, um, which, is, which is good, but I was thinking about that this morning, the you know, slight inconvenience of having to make it from there into here, and just considering that there's many who are trying to gather this morning with much more than just rain in their way, right? There are those who have governments in their way and neighbors in their way in a way that we can't imagine. So praise God for getting here in the rain, but let's not pat ourselves on the back too much uh, because there are those that are uh, facing gunpoint and knife point under the cover of darkness behind closed doors, and yet they are still likewise gathered to worship the same God we're here to worship this morning. So praise God for that. Speaking of uh, those in other nations that may be gathering, I want to, if you're a member of Four Corners, be sure to invite you back to our members meeting tonight. We have these once a month on the second Sunday, and tonight we're going to be sharing a little bit more about some of our efforts and focus in terms of uh, global missions and uh, some folks that we're considering to support. So uh, please come back if you're a member. I know that Sunday afternoon is prime time for NAP. I know that rainy afternoons are prime time for naps, so rainy Sunday afternoons are just like, ugh, prime, prime time for naps. So uh, that aside, go home, get your nap, come back at 5 p.m. and join us for the members meeting tonight. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we uh, have been in Exodus uh, consistently. We're walking through Exodus and have been for the last year or so. And Lord willing, when Lonnie returns next week, we will be beginning, uh, be beginning the Ten Commandments. Uh, he spent last week, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, preparing us to hear those Ten Commandments, preparing us to see uh, the Lord behind the law. And if you were here last week, I think you saw how necessary it was to focus on those two verses before we just jump into verse 3 in those ten. But for the next little, little bit, uh, I would presume for the next ten weeks, We'll be in the Ten Commandments, so look forward to that. But today, as Lonnie is out of town, uh, we'll be back in our other study in Philippians. So go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3 with me. Well, today we're just going to be in three verses, verses 12 through 14. We've been in Philippians for some time. We, we, only, we only come here every, every once in a while, intermittently. Uh, So we've been in Philippians for uh, almost two years, believe it or not, and we're halfway through chapter three. We walked through the first major section of teaching, which covered uh, chapter one and chapter two, and there Paul is highlighting the Christian's citizenship in the kingdom of God, and that citizenship is evidenced through their self-denial, through their purity of life, through their honoring of Christ in the way they image their life after him. In the second section of Philippians, which we started in our last sermon, began in chapter 3 and takes us into chapter 4. And here Paul elevates Christ as the target of all Christian affection. He is, as it were, the pearl of great price that Jesus speaks about in the parable in Matthew 13. He is the the treasure worth forsaking all else for. In, In Paul's words earlier in chapter three, all else is rubbish, all else is garbage compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. This is the singular declaration of Paul's life. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. And by any means possible, to attain the resurrection of the dead. That's verse 11. Where we will be known by him truly and we will finally know him fully. So that's, that's where Paul started in chapter 3. Holding up Christ as the supreme treasure for his life against which all other things fall by the wayside. So it's worth asking ourselves here, what of your life? Does your life have a pointed singular focus? Or is Christ a pursuit among many? He's just He's just mixed into the soup of your life, and He's just another ingredient alongside your you name it. Does he have to compete with other things in your life for your undivided attention? Or like Paul, can you say there is a singular focus? Later in these verses, we're going to see Paul say just one thing, one thing that I'm after. Do you have a one thing or is Christ one among many? A few weeks ago, we had a men's retreat and it was, it was centered around um, the family. Uh, being husbands, being fathers, and we even considered how the elder qualifications uh, speak into that. One of the questions that Lonnie asked us as he preached on being a husband, he, he talked about how we're, we're meant to lead, yes, our, our wives are in this, this vulnerable position uh, of, of having to follow a leader, submit to a leader. But the question is, where are you going? Do you even know where you are going, husband, man of God? Do you have a target? Do you have a place? Or is it just sort of spaghetti thrown on the back wall and somewhere in there is where you're going? Well, if I could follow up on Lonnie's challenge to us a few weeks ago, do we have a target? Not just husbands. Yes, husbands. Do you have a target for your wife and your family to follow? But all of us, do we have a target? Parents, is our is our Is our parenting modeling a specific thing for our children? We don't have to teach them this. Our our manner of life will just model it for them. Is Jesus a legitimate category? Is Is that all we're showing our children? Jesus is a legitimate category that you need in your life. Maybe he's even one of the bigger categories. He's just a legitimate category amongst other files in the folder. Because you can, you can explicitly say one thing, but then the manner of life might betray what you say. Because in your life, Jesus is just a legitimate category among many other legitimate categories. Or is he the ground underneath it all, in the umbrella over it all, in everything around it all? See, there's a difference between Jesus as category and Jesus as above, below, around, and the thread that laces through everything. So consider what role Christ plays in your life. Because for Paul, it was the singular focus worth forsaking all else for. In reality, Paul had more than we probably do that needed to be forsaken when it came to his place in Judaism, his accolades, his heritage. We talked about that last time, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. All of these things that he has laid by the wayside because his singular pursuit is to know Christ. That was the focus that he began in chapter 3. And that continues, not only continues, but amplifies. The focus on Christ not only continues, but amplifies as we move through chapter 3. So the thrust of verses 1 through 11, which is where we were the last time we were in Philippians, was on knowing Christ. The thrust on today's passage in verses 12 through 14 is on pursuing Christ and then eventually, Lord willing, when we get there, the thrust of verses 15 through 21 will be awaiting Christ. So Paul moves from knowing Christ to pursuing Christ to awaiting Christ as we move through chapter 3. This, this really is a Beautiful chapter. I, I, get, I get that chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 gets most of the attention in Philippians. Rightly so. It's the Christ hymn. You can go back and listen to that. We talked about that about a year ago. But this really is a beautiful chapter that holds up the preciousness of Jesus. And, and though Paul speaks in the first person, this whole chapter is first person. I, I, I. Paul's talking in the first person. Very little imperative here. But though Paul speaks in the first person, it forces us to consider the place of Christ in our life. This is not just autobiographical. It's not just Paul's way. You may have your way. Someone else may have their way. This forces us to consider the place of Christ in our life. So if you would go ahead and stand and let's read. I'm going to, we're going to start back at the beginning of chapter 3 and we'll read up through verse, uh, verse 14 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evil doers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He was speaking of circumcision there. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence, Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You can go ahead and be seated. I waffled up until about last night as to whether we would go into verses 15 and 16 this morning. And I made the decision late to to stop in 14. Uh, We could have done 15 and 16, but uh, the final straw was that there's just so much to do in 12 to 14 that I didn't want to do any of those verses in justice. So those will have to wait until the next sermon. Let's go to the Lord and pray and ask him to help us as we hear from him. God, we thank you this morning for the rain that you've given us. And it's a reminder of what you tell us in Isaiah 55, that just as the rain falls to the ground and it waters the earth and it doesn't doesn't return void, your word, when it falls from your mouth, it likewise waters us. It likewise produces in us what you intend. And it does not return void. So we trust that this morning, God, that as we come and as we set our attention for these next few minutes on three verses written 2,000 years ago, that it would not just be reading some words from a guy a long time ago, but we are here now listening to the voice of God. God, I am not your voice, but I am speaking. I ask that you speak through me by the Holy Spirit today so that as it were, we would hear this message as from you. Be that the same this morning with our children as they study about the temptation of Jesus in the desert and the way he undid what Adam did in the garden. That Adam's threefold failure before the serpent became Christ's threefold victory over the serpent. May they see that, God. May they see their own need for the word. May they see their own need for this Christ who fulfills the law on our behalf and then empowers us to run after him. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Two words this morning that help us identify the focus of this passage Uh, Two words, and I, I realize the first one is two words in itself, but you get what I'm saying. Two words are not yet and onward. Two words that identify the force of this passage, not yet and onward. On the heels of the soaring language of verses 10 and 11, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, attain the resurrection from the dead on the heels of that soaring language, Paul comes right back down to reality. Lest anyone think this pursuit of Paul makes him otherworldly, he is quick to say, not that I have already obtained this, not that I am already perfect, I have not yet made it my own. This shows a sober-mindedness in Paul. His mind is not caught up in the clouds. He is not disconnected from the realities and the struggles and the difficulties of everyday life. He does not sit in an ivory tower, neither physically nor literally. Physically, he's in prison. Right? He's in Rome, in prison. In probably a much worse prison than we would find here in Coweta County. Literally, he is not in an ivory tower, and figuratively, he is not either. He's a man of the people. Paul knows the struggles of life. He is not ignorant, nor is he aloof to the hard road of the pilgrim's progress. This is, after all, the man who wrote Romans chapter 7. Let me read some of those verses and hear him talk about the struggle. This is not a man who sits in an ivory tower for I do not do the good I want but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing now if I do what I do not want it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me so I find it to be I find it to be a law that when I want to do right Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? These are the words of a man who is aware and awake to his heart. This is a man who knows the new man must still wage war against the old man. The last remaining vestiges of the old man still must be waged war against. It's sober minded because it shows that Paul has the wherewithal to recognize both the already and the not yet of the Christian life. That might be a new phrase for you, already and not yet, but it's, it's one that gets tossed around pretty frequently in various ways in common Christian lingo. Paul doesn't use this phrase, but it does get at the tension he is acknowledging in these verses. We have, Paul and we, have already been truly saved. Truly saved. No question about it. Yet at the same time, We have not yet been 100% complete. We can already be truly saved, yet at the same time not 100% complete. One of the ways to understand this dynamic is to look at the, the tenses of salvation, the way that salvation is spoken of in the New Testament. The Bible, despite what you may think, does not treat salvation in just a monolithic way. So let me, let me show you this. Salvation is spoken of as instantaneous and decisive. This would be in the past tense. Romans chapter five, verse one, for example. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse four, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which means we have the Holy Spirit, Who has been given to us. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. So our salvation is spoken of as instantaneous, decisive, guaranteed, and finalized in a sense. It is also current and progressive. So salvation is often also spoken of in the present tense. Three times in the Corinthian correspondence, that is first and second Corinthians, Paul Paul does this. So here's an example, chapter one, verse eighteen. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or 1 Corinthians 15 2 the gospel is the message by which we are being saved. Here's another one in 2 Corinthians 2.15 you can look up. But salvation is often spoke of in the present tense. It is current and progressive in a sense. Salvation is also spoken of as future and certain. Listen to Romans 8.28 and 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This chain of events covers from eternity past, predestined from before the foundations of the world, all the way to new heavens and new earth, bodily glorification. That's the end result. And we're going to see that in chapter 3, verse 21, that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's incredible. So, in another sense, our salvation won't be complete until our lowly bodies are transformed to be like his glorious body past, present, and future. Another way to say this, more theologically, with theological words. We have been justified. It's decisive. We are being sanctified. It's progressive. And we will be glorified. That's the future. Now, when we refer to salvation, typically we're using that as shorthand for the decisive moment of justification in the past, and rightly so. But then the problem is we think of sanctification as just, at best, a necessary addition to justification. And then if we think about it at all, glorification is just some out there mystical thing. But the Bible doesn't treat salvation that way. Justification is salvation. Sanctification is salvation. Glorification is salvation. And this is what Paul is getting at. This is the tension he is recognizing, that he is already saved, and yet in some sense, not yet saved. Not yet perfect. Not yet complete. This is the broad New Testament doctrine. But we still need to answer the question and look at the text more specifically. What exactly is it Paul doesn't have yet? Because the text doesn't tell us so, so look, at your, look at your text. Two times in verse 12, we get obtained this, and I press on to make it my own. Not explicit. Verse 13, we get it again. I do not consider that I have made it my own. And in the Greek, these objects are not even there. They're just implied. Literally, it says something like, not that I have already obtained, but I, I press on to make my own. I press on to make my own. There is no it. There's no this. It's totally implied. So we need to do the work to consider what is it that Paul doesn't yet have? What is the thing he is going to be striving after? We might look at the immediate context around verse 12 and say, well, the this must point to the, to the preceding verse in verse 11. As he's talking about the resurrection from the dead. Or we could look ahead to verse 14 and say the it must be the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But I think Paul would be more specific than that. I think we should be more specific than that. As we'll see, and as you've already heard, this passage is filled with strenuous verbs. Verbs of strenuous pursuit. It's like, it's like the image here is a runner nearing the finish line. Arms are flailing. Pupils are dilated. Nostrils are flared. Chest is heaving. Moving towards the most precious thing in life. For which Paul has suffered the loss of all things. So if you ask Paul, Paul, what's the it? What's the this that you don't have yet? I think he would say, I already told you. I've stripped back everything in my life because of the surpassing worth of knowing him and I don't know him fully yet. I have not seized a full knowledge of him. I'm still in this lowly body. I don't know what it's like to have a glorified body yet. I'm still burdened, a la Romans 7, of the vestiges of the old man. I still long to be transformed into the blazing, glorious image of the Savior who arrested me on that road to Damascus that morning. It's not moral perfection that Paul lacks. It's final glory. It's final glory that Paul has not yet obtained. And the resurrection is a means to final glory. The resurrection is a means to final glory. The upward call is an invitation to this final glory. Not that those things are wrong, but they just don't go far enough. It is the full knowledge of Christ that comes at final glory. When when the new heavens and the new earth have been established, we have been raised from the dead, united with Christ. Our bodies have been healed and redeemed it's that state of final glory that he has not yet obtained so two questions for us before we move on to the next point are you this sober-minded about the reality of the not yet are you this sober-minded about the reality of the not yet do you really believe in this reality. Because what we're reading is the greatest Christian who ever lived, if there were such a title, an apostle himself, is claiming that he is not yet done. There is yet more to go. How much more you and I, Christian. None of us have had a Damascus Road experience. None of us have seen the risen Lord in the clouds speak to us. And yet here he is saying, I have not yet obtained it still. Do you really believe in that reality? Or have you considered the Christian life to simply be about box checking? Because it's not. It's about transformation. It's about being transformed into the image of Christ. And as long as you don't look like him in final glory, there is yet more transformation to be done. So if that is the way you have thought, I would encourage you to consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians thirteen five. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Is he in you? Because if he is, you are at the same time safe and sound with a deposit guarantee of the Holy Spirit and yet you have miles to go until you are with him, until you have been totally transformed in mind and body and will, totally conformed to his own will. Then you will have seized him fully. Second question. Assuming the answer to the first question is, yes, I am sober-minded about this reality of the not yet. Second question is this. What is your response to that reality? When you are faced with the reality of your own incompleteness, when you are faced with the reality of your own remaining unchristlikeness, likeness what do you do? And I want to put before you at least two possible responses that might cover many in here. If your response isn't like Paul's response, which we'll get to, maybe your response to the reality of your own incompleteness is despair. You see the miles left to walk, and you crumble at the thought of the weight of that task. The road may be long, Christian, and the road is hard, Jesus tells us as much in Matthew 7, and it is narrow, but the answer for you who despair is to remember the promises of God. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Isaiah 42 If you've read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, there's a chapter there where Christian and Hopeful decide to take a shortcut or to rest their feet in the soft grass just on the other side of the fence from the road. And before they know it, they have been captured by the giant, Despair. And they spend a night on his grounds. He captures them and throws throws them in his castle, the castle of despair and he he imprisons them he beats them he encourages them to kill themselves because you'll never get out and if you don't i'll just beat you again tomorrow and then i'll kill you so just go ahead and do it and then one evening as they're praying about midnight Allah, paul and silas act 16 in philippian the philippian jail Christian has a realization. He has a key around his neck, a key called promise, and the key opens all the doors. All he had to do was stick promise in the door and walk out. He was never captured. He was never caught by despair. It had no hold on him. All he had to do was remember the promise and use it and walk out the front door. Despair cannot imprison you, Christian. Unless you believe the lies of the enemy of despair. Oh, the road's too long. The road is too hard. Maybe it's not worth it at the end. Maybe the celestial city isn't even there. You have the promises of God. So do not despair at the task. Do not despair when you see the miles left to go. Do not crumble under its weight. You have the promises of God. Another possible response to the reality of the not yet is laziness. I've got time. I'll figure it out. You don't and you won't. Could you imagine the man In the parable of the the pearl of great price or the hidden treasure in Matthew 13, he finds the treasure in a field and the very next thing he does, in his joy, he sells all that he has to buy that field. Could you imagine finding a treasure more valuable than anything and waiting a week or a few years to the next season of life until you can get around to going to dig it up? That's foolishness. There is no time. You won't figure it out. The enemy will have seized you by then and you won't come back. Maybe, another way laziness manifests, maybe you're satisfied with an inch of sanctification. Maybe you're satisfied with this much growth and you don't realize you've got a mile of inches left to go. You say, "Ah, that'll do. That's all I need. Quit doing those few things. I'll be good. We're still a mile away from the, the one whose image we are being sanctified into. And yet we're good with a little bit of growth. That's relative. That's relative holiness. That's relative sanctification. Maybe you look around, consider yourself relative to those around you. Do we consider everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing your neighbor? Do we count all things as rubbish so that we may gain the respect of men? No, may it not be. May our eyes be on the one whom we long to know, and may be we may we be wholly unsatisfied until we are made to be like him. There is a holy restlessness we ought to have as Christians, right? A holy unsatisfaction. It was Augustine who said, we are restless until we find our rest in him. May we be a little restless as we make this pursuit. Paul's response to the reality of the not yet is certainly not despair, and it's certainly not laziness. Paul's outlook is not yet, therefore, onward. Not yet, therefore, onward. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. One thing forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead i press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus the whole orientation of paul's life is future facing we've seen that the whole orientation is forward facing the whole reason there is a not yet is because there's something left to come if it was all about right now there would no be no there would be no not yet fully and finally knowing Christ, seeing Him for what He's worth, being transformed in His image. These are future forward-facing realities. But His response to the future is to look onward now. So I want us to notice two things about this response, onward. Two things. It fuels present pursuit and it is enabled By past purchase. It fuels the present pursuit and it is enabled by past purchase. Let's look at that first one. The language of strenuous pursuit is just unmistakable. We get it five times in these three verses. Two times we get the word translated press on, which could also be pursue. And then three times we get the word make my own, or I like the word seize, or to attain something with great exertion. The image projected is of a runner competing in a race. He runs not only to finish, but he runs to win. He trains. He is diligent. He is self-controlled. He is intentional. He knows his finish line, and his singular purpose is getting there first. This is the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Let me read that for you. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or a perishable prize. But we, an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The only way to reach the finish line is to run. The only way to get from point A to point B is to take dead aim and put one foot in front of the other over and over and over again. The way Paul runs this race in the present is by forgetting and by straining. He says there in the middle of verse verse 13, one thing I do, this is how I pursue forgetting what lies behind. So let's put some flesh on that. What kind of things need to be put in the past? What kind of things need to be forgotten behind? One, I think, is the sin of the past. May it not cast a long shadow over the race. It cannot weigh you down any longer. Christian, it is dealt with as real as is the not yet, so is the already. You have been justified. There is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8, 1. Yes, there may be consequences, but the sin is paid for. So do not slow your present pursuit because you're concerned about whether or not Christ took care of your sin. Hebrews nine fourteen: the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God will purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ deals with it all. Why? So that you may serve the living God. So if you're holding on to the thing that Christ isn't holding on to, he buried it. He paid for it. He's felt it. He knows better than you do. And it's gone. So don't do what Christ himself isn't doing. Don't carry around the burden of your already dealt with sin. Put it in the past and run. Something else that may me may need to be forgotten about in the past is the successes of your past. I mentioned a minute ago about being satisfied with an inch of sanctification. Don't be fooled that an inch of growth is sufficient and you're trying to run this way, but all you can ever do is pat yourself on the back because you're looking at how far you've been. What a foolish way to run. No marathon runner, having finished the first 13 miles, pats himself on the back, coasts the rest of the way home because he's done. He's not done. He hasn't finished the race. We cannot let past success dupe us into thinking the race is complete. Sanctification is not relative to you and it's not relative to what you see around you. It's relative to final glory. The job is not done. Paul's writing here at the end of his life after packing in into 30 years more fruitful ministry than any of us would be able to do in 10 lifetimes. And yet even from prison, no matter the circumstances, regardless of ability or resources or opportunity, he's breathing. So there's race left to run. If you're breathing, Christian, Christian, there is race left to run. There is transformation left to happen. Do not rely on the successes of your past to fuel the rest of your race. The third thing that needs to be forgotten about is, is pretty obvious from the context, and that's all the distractions that are rubbish compared to Christ, all of those things which Paul has already talked about in the first few verses of chapter three, the achievements. The things he actively achieved. The things that were bestowed upon him because of his heritage. The accolades. Vain pursuits, perhaps. Small pleasures, perhaps, that need to be forgotten about. You think of C.S. Lewis's quote about the child going on playing in mud pies because he has no idea what is meant by a holiday at the sea. What mud pies do we need to put in the back? Many, if we were serious, about looking at our life. These must be left behind. All of these. Because they don't aid in the pursuit of the goal. They're distraction or worse. This is what's amazing. This is the filter for Paul's life. This is the filter. What aids in the pursuit of the goal? Does it aid? Does it not aid? Gone. Gone. Think of a sieve. You ever sifted dirt? It's a, 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 square, uh, a square bracket with a grid in the middle. And, and only the size of the grid, whatever the size of the grid is, is what size granules you'll have in the pile at the bottom. Everything that's too big just sits on the top. And everything that's small enough to fit through the sieve makes it to the bottom. What if you were to pour your life into a sieve and the size of the grid in the sieve is only the size of what aids in the pursuit of Christ? What's going to stay on top? What's going to get caught by the sieve? What's going to get caught by the grid? What's not going to make it through because it doesn't aid in the race? For Paul, there's no time. For those things that get caught on top. There's no time to wallow in past failures. And he had a lot of them. You talk about guilt. You talk about grief. He murdered Christians. No time. No time to glory in past success. And Paul had a lot of it. No time to be distracted distracted by temporary accolades or pleasures because the driving passion of life is to know Jesus Christ fully in final glory. So he says, I strain forward with great exertion, not because I'm afraid I won't make it, but because I can't wait to make it. That's why. Paul's not afraid he won't make it. He just can't wait to get there can't wait to make him my own so i strain forward to what lies ahead and i press on uh, notable about this word press on this is the same word in other areas translated persecute or persecution in fact it's the same word paul uses in chapter 3 verse 6 to describe what he was to the church As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, a a one who pressed on against the church, a pursuer of the church. God has turned a persecutor of the church into a pursuer of Christ. Praise God. This is the mystery of the gospel, by the way. That the son of God would lay his life down for the most vile, the persecutors of the church and for you and me who are the most vile. That's what our God does. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian and you're wondering who it is we're talking about, this is what our God does. He takes one who could be a persecutor of the church and turns him into a pursuer of Christ. This is the mystery of the gospel. And everyone who is a Christian here this morning has experienced that. So, how future oriented is your present pursuit? How future-oriented is your present pursuit? Because Paul's present pursuit was not about getting out of this Roman prison. Any of us, that would have been the next big hurdle to jump, right? Oh, I'm in the season of life, the prison season, right? It'll get it'll it'll be done when I'm out of this season, right? But Paul's present pursuit wasn't only oriented a little bit into the future. It wasn't just getting past this hard day, this hard week, or this next big life event. Maybe for you it's a little further out. Maybe your present pursuit is just oriented around this next season of life. The point of this text is how much does future glory motivate your present pursuit? Open your eyes, Christian. Look up, look beyond whatever's right in front of you, to see how the full and final knowledge of Christ being conformed to his will and his image might determine what you do today. Because for Paul, that was everything. Don't just say that's pie-in-the-sky stuff. Don't say that's just eschatology. It'll all work out in the end. That's not Paul. His nose is to the grindstone because his eye is up there. His hand is to the plow because he's looking to Christ, fueled by a vision way bigger than anything this world has to offer. So, as we close, we need to consider what is perhaps the most significant part of Paul's logic. Remember, there were were two parts of this onward response it fuels present pursuit, which we just considered but it also is enabled by past purchase. Look at verse 12 with me. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. All of Paul's striving and straining and pursuing after Christ is only possible because Christ has already strived And strained and pursued Paul. You miss this, you miss the sermon. You miss this, you miss the whole text. Remember Exodus chapter 20 last week, verses 1 and 2? God reveals, and he relates, and he redeems, and then what? Then he requires. Right, you you get the order wrong, you ruin the Ten Commandments. You get the order wrong, they make no sense. Your pursuit of them is wrong from the get-go. Same thing here, to miss verse twelve B in this text is to miss the text altogether. You can't just strive after Christ unless he has striven after you first. This is not a self-propelled pursuit. It is not self-willed. It is not a bootstrap pursuit. Kent Hughes writes, Paul's whole pursuit of Christ was Christ-originated, Christ-motivated, and Christ-propelled. One more that's helpful from Gordon Fee. Christ's work is the prior one. It's the first one. And all that his own effort is simply in response to and for the sake of that prior apprehension of him by Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of Paul's effort is simply in response to and to attain the thing for which Christ apprehended Paul in the first place. I wrestled a lot as I prepared this week with the idea of assurance. Not because I think that's in question here, but because I think that's probably a likely response to some to this language of strenuous pursuit. We love Psalm 23. We love Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. We love those passages, and we tend to think that these are sort of somehow in tension with those. And then it causes us to question our assurance. I can't know that I'm going to make it until I make it, right? I can't know that I'm going to get to the finish line until I get to the finish line, so I guess all I can do now is just wonder. It was really burdened by that this week because... That's nowhere in the text. Nowhere in the text is Paul questioning or even hinting about his own assurance. But I think the reason we ask those questions, they're not nefarious by the way, they're perfectly legitimate questions, but we confuse the necessity of the pursuit with decisiveness, We confuse the necessity of the pursuit with the decisiveness in our salvation. We think the pursuit is decisive, therefore it is necessary. And that's not true. We think the pursuit is decisive and therefore it's necessary, but that's not true. Christ's seizure of you is what was decisive. Therefore, the pursuit is necessary. That language of decisiveness comes from John Piper's new book a couple of years ago on providence. And I want to read the whole quote here. He's talking about these specific verses. What Paul makes plain here in Philippians is how fully our own effort is called into action. We do not wait for the miracle. We act the miracle. We are not deluded into thinking that our action is unnecessary or that our action is decisive. It is neither. On the contrary, our effort in pursuit of final salvation is necessary. And God's willing and doing are decisive. To get the order right. We get the order wrong. All kinds of questions about assurance. All kinds of questions of will I make it? Why am I doing this? Who's propelling me? But get the order right. And Paul has absolutely zero question of assurance. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The pursuit of Christ is the confirmation that you have been pursued by Christ. That's the logic of verse 12. The pursuit of Christ is the very confirmation that you have already been pursued by him. If you're reading this morning with the New American Standard or the Legacy Standard or the NIV, your verse 12 reads a little different. And it's not, it's not wrong. In fact, I, I prefer that translation in the NASB. And it says something probably like, I press on to lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of by Christ. It's kind of wordy. You see why maybe they didn't go that direction here in the ESV. There's no theological difference between the, the language of causation because Christ pursued me what these verses say, but I do want to draw out what these other versions make more plain. So let me say it again, because I know most of you would probably have the ESV in your lap. You don't have it to look down to. So let me just say it again. I'm going to use the word seize. One, because it's just more compact than lay hold of. So I'm going to say it again. This, This is really more literal, what Paul is saying. I'm going to use the word seize. I press on that I may seize that for which I have been seized by Christ. One more time. I press on that I may seize that for which I have been seized by Christ. So we have two subjects that are doing the seizing. We have Paul who is seizing the that. And we have Christ who is seizing Paul for the that or the it, right? The thing Paul is striving to seize Is the full knowledge of Christ in final glory? The thing this is the key. This is so beautiful. The thing for which Christ seized Paul, the full knowledge of himself in final glory. Paul's goal and Christ's goal for Paul are the same goal. You see that? Paul's goal and Christ's goal for Paul is the same goal. That's what it means, Christian. You heard that Jesus is for you. What in the world does that mean? This is what it means. Not that he's for your achievements, or he's for the the you know your your pursuing and achieving your successes and goals and hobbies or comfort. What it is is that he is for you to have him. That's why he got you in the first place. He sees you for himself that you would know him. Therefore, as Christians, we don't have the right to maintain any other pursuit. He initiates the pursuit, enables, propels, and determines the pursuit. It is all for him and by him and to him and from him. So don't leave this message feeling burdened by all that you have to go figure out to do. What am I going to do? Don't feel burdened. You have to go cook up something to pursue Christ. Read his word. He tells us. He tells us what to do. He tells us who to be. The chapter that Craig read, this, or the verses Craig read this morning in 1 Timothy 6, I chose those because that's Paul at the end of his life encouraging this younger brother pastor in the faith. Here's the things you need to be about, Timothy. Read the word and see what it is he's called us to do, who it is he's called us to be. Read the elder qualifications, men and women. Those are good things to pursue. Be that kind of Christian. Let us finish this morning with the race metaphor once again. Remember the starting block. Your entire race is only possible because Christ put you in the blocks. Don't let the enemy twist this message into one of helpless despair because you forget that it's Christ who propels the race. We don't run on inertia. We don't run on gravity downhill. And we don't coast to the end on momentum. This is not self willed motivation. Remember Kent Hughes' comment Paul's whole pursuit of Christ was Christ originated, Christ motivated, and Christ propelled. You miss that? You miss the text. Second and final note, die running. Die running. The race is not over until you have reached the goal, and you will not reach the goal while you're breathing. The other side of the finish line is the other side of this life. So, young, elderly, anywhere in between, in prison, Like Paul, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which is an invitation to know Christ fully and finally. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that this would fall on us appropriately that we would not despair at this message in leave feeling the weight of it. But we serve a God who does indeed give us rest. But that rest is not inactive. It's not passive. It calls us to something. So God, would you help us to be faithful by your spirit, always and only by your spirit, To run the race set before us, as the author of Hebrews says. To run the race intentionally, as Paul mentioned. Help us, God, to do this so that we may honor you and glorify you. And so that we may show ourselves to have been truly in you. Thank you for this Lord's Supper that we are going to Participate in now. Thank you for the blood that you shed for us. For us undeserving sinners. It's your name we pray. Amen.